Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I'm joined as always by my colleague Kelly Vlahos. Today we're talking to Al Goldstein of Defense Priorities about the war in Ukraine and Ukraine's counteroffensive. But first, let's turn to a story about the Saudi government and a new report on some of its most horrendous human rights abuses. Human Rights Watch has documented how Saudi forces have repeatedly fired on Ethiopian migrants with machine guns, rockets, and mortars as they were entering the kingdom's territory across the border with Yemen. According to Human Rights Watch, Saudi forces have killed hundreds and possibly even thousands of unarmed people in this fashion between March 2022 and June 2023. As they said on their website, if committed as part of a Saudi government policy to murder migrants, these killings, which appear to continue, would be a crime against humanity. They base their findings on interviews with eyewitnesses, photographic evidence showing the attacks, and satellite imagery. The report also details how migrants captured by Saudi forces would be subjected to torture by being shot in their extremities. According to the Washington Post article on the report, interviewees told harrowing tales of rapacious smugglers, piles of corpses, and devastating mortar and rocket attacks that left migrants dismembered and dying on the trail. The report adds to the long list of atrocities that Saudi forces have committed in connection with the war on Yemen. And let's not forget that the Saudi coalition also bombed a prison in Yemen where African migrants were being held in 2022, where dozens of them were killed in that strike as part of the larger indiscriminate bombing campaign that's been going on or that was up until that point had been going on since 2015. As another reminder of what sort of government that the U.S. arms and supports in Riyadh. It's no secret that the Saudi government is brutal and abusive, and we've known that for a long time, but this latest report really drives home how bad it is. And this is the same government that the Biden administration is seriously considering offering a security guarantee as part of its bizarre push for a normalization deal with Israel. The same week that the Human Rights Watch report came out, there was another report that Biden was considering meeting with Mohammed bin Salman at next month's G20 meeting to pursue the so-called mega-deal with the Saudis. But what justification can Biden have to keep seriously pursuing a deal that would involve a U.S. pledge to defend Saudi Arabia when their government is committing such heinous crimes and is, is committing them even now? What do you make of it, Kelly? Well, I mean, I'm just so upset when I read the Human Rights Watch report I mean, it's so visceral, and it really brings home uh, the migrant crisis in that part of the world. I think most of us tend to ignore, um, maybe not consciously, that this has been going on since our 9-11 wars. Um, I mean, it's been going on since the dawn of time, but our 9-11 wars had unleashed a displacement crisis across the globe, and we know that. And... We've moved on from the wars, you know, and we're all in our little island here in our bubbles, but the rest of the world hasn't. And there are, continue to be Syrian people, for example, that are stuck in, in camps with no future to speak of. And then you have the migrants that you see week in and week out who are dying at sea, trying desperately to get from places like Tunisia and uh, countries in Africa to Europe, and then this. And the absolute brutality with which these Ethiopians are being treated is just a punch in the gut. Uh, there was one anecdote, I think, that begins the report where it talks about a boy who, when the shooting started, just snuggled underneath a rock and fell asleep. And he felt the presence of, you know, other people around him. And then when he woke up, he realized that they were dead bodies and he was all alone and he's 14 years old. And I put up a, a piece about this on Responsible Statecraft. And 
yesterday and I was looking at, for pictures uh, on Reuters and they had multiple pictures of Ethiopian migrants being sent back to Ethiopia from Saudi Arabia a few months ago and just looking at the faces of these people. And these are my neighbors. Honestly, I have a big Ethiopian and Eritrean community in Arlington, Virginia and the Metro DC area, beautiful people. They come here, they work hard. They have a very strong, well-networked community. And just to think of them as in anybody struggling uh, to get out of whatever situation they have and then meeting up with these smugglers and these policemen and um, whether they be Saudi Arabian or the Houthis who, you know, these people are traversing through Yemen um, do not cover themselves in glory either in this report. Um, they take these Ethiopians, they put them in camps, they, you know, they extort their money for it from them. Then they send them along to Saudi Arabia where they're shot at the border. And then that's after they're being raped. So I, I agree with you. This, there's, like, there's so much question about why the Biden administration is even entertaining the prospect of giving Saudi Arabia a security guarantee but this only lends to it. And I, I feel like this is not us. We profess to be um, a country that stands behind values of, you know, uh, de democracy, equality, you know, the golden rule. And we keep treating with these other countries who have nothing in common with us as far as I'm concerned, in terms of how to treat people humanely at a, at a very basic level. And yet we're going to extend to them all of the security of the United States, which I would imagine would include U.S. troops defending Saudi Arabia. And so it really is an, an outrage in, in, in my mind. And it, it raises important questions that we, we need to have Congress asking these questions of the administration and pressing them on this. Uh, not only about the details of negotiations that have been going on with the Saudis about any deal, but about what weapons are being used by these forces, where they're getting these weapons from. Uh, I, would, I would wager that many of the weapons that are being used against these migrants are weapons that we sold them, that our government sold to the Saudis uh, in the past. Uh, all, all in the name, of course, of self-defense. And this is how it's always built, where we're providing them with the means to defend themselves. And then now we see how they defend themselves. They, they do it by gunning down unarmed people. And so that, that to me, I think, really underlines how, how all arms sales to the Saudis need to be suspended and, and I think ultimately canceled. We should not be providing them with any weapons of any kind, uh, regardless of, of what the, the, the official replication for them might be, uh, because we can see how they're going to be used. And they're not going to be used in the way that the people in Washington say they will be. Uh, they'll be used to commit atrocities, just like the, the weapons that we provided to them in the past were used to commit atrocities in Yemen. Uh, future arms sales will be used to commit uh, other atrocities, either against people inside Saudi Arabia uh, or in neighboring countries. And so I, you know, that's what we have to uh, drive home, and, and we need to see Congress starting to, to bring some of the pressure to bear on Biden that they did bring to bear on Trump and and you know when are we going to see that pressure coming on Biden? Where where is the where is the resistance that we saw just a few years ago? Yeah, I I 
I would be very interested to see how this Human Rights Watch report plays out at the State Department level, because they have had evidence in the past, as you said, of both Saudi Arabia and UAE committing war crimes and violating whatever restrictions or guidelines that they are supposed to be adhering to in order to get our weapons under the Leahy law, which requires countries that get our weapons to not violate, you know, human rights, for example. And we've seen time and time again, you point out um, the, the Saudi war on Yemen, that would include UAE, which was also involved in that war, but also things like using um child soldiers and um, using weapons to send in proxy wars in the region. And the State Department has come back time and again saying, nope, they're not violating. We can, we can still give them weapons. And I feel like this is another clear example of these human rights violations. It'll be interesting to see if, if this is taken seriously by the State Department. But you know, let's face it, Dan, it seems as though the Biden administration, just like previous administrations, are committed to getting these weapons out the door. And the resistance that Congress has put up in certain circumstances just turn out to be like little speed bumps. They still happen. These sales still happen. It's just they might not happen right away. And then maybe the administration has to go through a song and dance. The State Department has to rule that there are no human rights violations, yada, yada. But it seems that the commitment to selling these weapons and now the commitment in this case with Saudi Arabia and uh, a potential security agreement from the Biden administration is is steeped in this real urgency that Washington has to see Saudi Arabia normalize relations with Israel. And so that's the main goal. And whatever it takes to get to that goal, it seems that the Biden administration is, is hell bent on um, pursuing. And I'm not sure that even these egregious crimes will, will prevent that from happening. And that makes me like sad and angry and uh, it, it does just underscore the hypocrisy with which we engage in as a as a government, as you know, I'd say Washington engages in when we talk this big game about democracies versus autocracies when it comes to Ukraine and Eastern Europe. But then we completely turn a blind eye um, to this authoritarian nightmare that is Saudi Arabia. I mean, we just had a story up by Ben Freeman about their sports washing uh, activities, you know, Saudi Arabia getting engaged in all these professional support sports. Most recently, this uh, LIV Live PGA Tour merger that has to get approval. And the Senate is engaging in hearings as we speak and Saudi Arabia stonewalling won't give them any any of the information that they need and we're not surprised because this is their this is their MO secrecy non-transparency but here they are wanting to engage in professional sports and hollywood and gaming and it's all it it's all created to um massage and the you know our image of Saudi Arabia away from, you know, dismembering, dismembering journalists and killing 
migrants at the border and making them out to be just, you know, some rich guys who love sports and, and Hollywood movies. And it's just, it's sad. <laughs> it is. It is. And, and the, the sports washing that you, you're talking about uh, points to a, a larger problem with the Saudi relationship, which is the extent to which Saudi money and, and, and Gulf money in general has had a deeply corrupting effect, not only on the Washington foreign policy debate and obviously the, the money that sloshes in to many think tanks in town, uh, but also the, the effect that it has on uh, on the business world and the sports world. You have all of this money coming from these really reprehensible governments uh, buying influence, buying goodwill, and, and trying to rehab their images in the eyes of the public so that people don't think of them but they don't associate them with their crimes. They associate them with watching golf. And so I, I think it's it's really important for people that want to, to change this relationship and, and end it uh, to bring pressure to bear also on those uh, sports organizations and businesses that are taking that money and to, to insist that they not partner with such uh, atrocious governments. Our guest today is Lyle Goldstein. He is the Director of Asia Engagement at Defense Priorities. He was a research professor at the Naval War College for 20 years and is the author of several books on Chinese strategy, including Meeting China Halfway. Welcome back to the show. Oh, great to be here. Uh, it's, a, it's a great show, so I'm glad to come on anytime. Right, thank you. And, well, we, we always love having you on. And uh, uh, Today, we'll actually be talking about Ukraine. Uh, of course, you, you focus a lot on, on China and, uh, and issues related uh, to East Asia. Uh, but today we wanted to talk to you about the the progress or lack of progress in the war in Ukraine. Um, the war in Ukraine seems to have become a grinding stalemate, uh, as has been confirmed with uh, lots of reporting over uh, recent weeks uh, from from all the major newspapers. Uh, you've been following the war very closely from the start. Uh, so, what is your assessment of the current state of Ukraine's counteroffensive? Uh, yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, I do try to follow it day to day. I, I speak Russian uh, pretty fluently. So I try to, you know, because I, I think there aren't too many people who do uh, still look at Russian media. I do, you know, I try to um, just keep abreast of what, what they're talking about. I mean, even if you regard Russia as uh, as our forever enemy, which seems to be more and more uh, conventional wisdom, uh, we still got to know what they're talking about and what, what their objectives are. Uh, um what their strategies are. So even if you take a very dark view, you should still be paying attention to Russian media, as I do. Um, uh, I think you're exactly right. Uh, the war is a hardening stalemate. Um, you know, I, I don't see uh, the, the, the counteroffensive, I think, uh, uh, mounted by Ukraine. Um, I think, you know, people are beginning to say out loud that uh, it seems to have been a Grand failure. I mean, I was just reading the Economist appraisal uh, from from this week's Economist, and you know they still try to put a happy face on it. But um, you know, I think uh, what we've seen, uh, you know, I, I, it, I'm frankly just uh, befuddled and very sad that you know, I mean, people who call themselves military experts, you know, all realize that this was going to be a failure uh, due to so many issues. You know, we can go into all of them, but whether you look at the mines or the fact that they, you know, Ukraine has no air power to speak of, 
um, you know, whatever um, piece of this you look at, it was bound to uh, to be a failure, especially given, you know, the immense amount of time that Russia has had to prepare its defenses, which it seems to have done uh, quite diligently. I mean, let's face it, uh, nobody quite expected the Ukrainian uh, offensive from last fall in, in the Kherson area uh, and the Kharkiv area to succeed. So I think, you know, that is the best explanation for why uh, everybody or many uh, have gotten this wrong, you know, saying, well, you know, the Ukrainians will use innovative tactics. They will, um, you know, uh, they have brave soldiers. Uh, that's the, no doubt about that. But uh, to assume that that could prevail over all these other military factors, uh, I think, was uh, very foolish. It's cost an immense amount of blood and treasure. Uh, you know, we'll see. You know, the point has been made that Ukraine's army, uh, uh, there may not be much left of them uh, if they keep battering uh, against this wall of Russian defenses. So, um, you know, will the stalemate last or will the, you know, could the Ukraine Ukrainian army collapse? Uh, I, I don't I don't think so. I, I One hopes that you, the powers in Kiev are smart enough to hold uh, some forces back, although um, we'll see. Uh, but, yeah, I see stalemate, you know, uh, uh, you know, for the foreseeable future. Right. I think one of the things that, uh, one of the mistakes that a lot of uh, say hawkish observers seem to make uh, with this counteroffensive is that they, they assumed that Russian forces wouldn't ever learn or adapt from their previous failures. And so that the, the same routes that had occurred in the past would, would just keep happening and, and that the Russians would just sort of automatically collapse as soon as any pressure was applied, and and as we we've seen, that's that's clearly not the case. Uh, in, in terms of, of Ukraine being uh, more conservative or holding back their forces, uh, we, we are seeing in a lot of these reports in recent weeks uh, expressions of concern from U.S. officials that Ukraine has become casualty averse, as as if I mean, as if that's a surprise that they would be casualty averse at this point. Um, I mean, how, how can we? How could they not be given the the staggering losses that they've suffered? New York Times reported just this last week that the U.S. estimates that casualties from the war are close to 500,000 killed and wounded from both sides. And obviously Ukraine, being the much smaller country in terms of population, can ill afford those kinds of losses. Uh, so, so shouldn't that by itself dictate a change in strategy uh, in the way that both the Ukrainian government and the U.S. are thinking about this war? Yeah, absolutely. And I suspect those casualty numbers are on the uh, low side. I think, uh, you know, that we've gotten all kinds of uh, signals that casualties are extremely high um, on both sides. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I think it's a whole generation. I mean, I mean, you, you don't have to be, you know, have a Ph.D. in strategy to realize that when the, um, you know, when, when the leadership in Kiev is investigating corruption among the people who are um, charged with filling the ranks, Right. We heard that reported in the mainstream media um, last week or the week before. Then, then you know, it, it's very obvious that they're having trouble filling the ranks. And that implies that the losses are huge. Uh, uh, and and so, yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's devastating. There needs to be a change in strategy. I mean, you know, again, let's step back for a moment and say, you know, I've always thought it's just incredibly arrogant of the uh, of the West, of the United States, of NATO to think that they had all the solutions to Ukraine's problems. I mean, that 
you know, across the board, but even to this sort of narrow problem. I mean, when's the last time NATO forces tried to penetrate, you know, uh, 30 miles of dense uh, minefields, uh, you know, with with combined warfare? Uh, the answer is they've never done it. So to to, uh, to to actually believe that NATO has all the answers and, yeah, you just need to do this or you just need to try a little harder or you just need this little uh uh gizmo um you know that was always a fantasy uh and you know i think unfortunately ukraine is learning um the very hard way that nato doesn't have all the answers to its security um uh, strategically operationally or tactically and uh it's horrible because this this uh realization is coming um uh at a huge cost in in lives uh and and it's very sad i think and and i'm just you know saddened every day to read about the tragedy. I mean, I do think uh, to your earlier point about Russian adaptation, um, it's pretty impressive and we shouldn't be that surprised. I mean, you've seen Russia sort of do this again and again, you know, by the way, the U S also has a tradition of this where, you know, the first battle or first two battles very, go very poorly for the U S or, or, or for Russia as it were. And they steadily, um, accumulate lessons, find the right people, alight on the right technologies, change their doctrine. So we've seen a, quite a lot of doctrinal adaptation on the Russian side and they seem to, you know, whereas earlier we said uh, Russia was very uh, backward in in its use of drones. Now it seems like, you know, their Lancet uh, kamikaze drone has been incredibly successful against um, against NATO uh, armor given to Ukraine. So, yeah, I mean, I think grudgingly I have to admit um, the Russian army, uh, if it was incompetent at the outset and made some very bad initial estimates, they seem to have uh, readjusted. Right, and and this brings us to the the question of, of war aims. What what's a, a realistic war aim? What what's achievable? And Wall Street Journal published an article earlier this week that called attention to the lack of achievable goals in the war, uh, from from both sides, but but particularly on the Ukrainian side. The report said, in private, many Western officials don't think that the U.S. and its allies can leave it to Kiev alone to define the goal. Ukraine's maximalist aims they fear guarantee an endless war. Do you agree with that assessment about their war aims? And if so, is there anything that Washington and its allies can do to persuade the Ukrainian government to reduce those ambitions? Yeah, I mean, I've I've always thought that, I mean, look, we can go back many, many years, and I, I prefer to pick out uh, Barack Obama, uh, who said very, you know, crystal clear, he said, we should not get involved in Ukraine, we should not arm Ukraine, because uh, Russia will always have overmatch in firepower. Well, guess what? Obama's words have, have come to haunt the American uh, security policy establishment, because, uh, you know, no matter what we do, uh, Russia will always uh, care immensely about this. It has, you know, rejiggered its whole defense industry to produce what it needs. And the, the firepower is is immense and the losses are immense. And even if Ukraine succeeded in getting to the next stage, breaking through a new set of defenses or getting these lovely F-16s, uh, on board that that would, uh, in fact, likely trigger escalation to uh, the nuclear level. And I've warned over and over that there are real nuclear dangers here. Uh, in fact, I was just in a track two dialogue with Chinese specialists and a Chinese specialist who knows uh, the Russian military establishment very well uh, told me that he says the Russians have no fear about resorting to tactical nuclear weapons. That really jarred me because I hadn't heard that from somebody who likely has a lot of access to the Russian military. So, you know, yeah, the goals are completely unrealistic. 
Um, they need to be rejiggered. I mean, I'm not an expert in how, uh, you know, the politics are moving in Kiev, honestly. But in my view, I mean, in some ways, maybe these people had to figure it out for themselves. You know, that is uh, Ukraine's commanders. I think you've, you've heard uh, uh, their senior commander is sort of questioning NATO wisdom, saying we're going to do it our way. Well, that's smart, right? I mean, maybe NATO tactics weren't appropriate. Maybe we're never appropriate for the Ukrainian army. And, and they should do, you know, what preserves their own forces, of course. But, um, yeah, so there's a process of self-learning. But, again, this has come at an immense cost, and they have to readjust their estimates. I mean, whether I do think responsible Western and U.S. leaders would uh, start to temper expectations. And, uh, you know, look, uh, the American public, I think, has lost uh, some of its enthusiasm for this. They see um, um, that this is not going anywhere positive, that it's led to so many downsides. So, So, yeah, the time to compromise... I think is here. I mean, we, we have an established stalemate. Um, you know, I, I guess the question is, can we bring, uh, you know, not just bring the Ukrainians, but also bring the Russians to the table? So, you know, it's it's enormously a uh, difficult problem to make peace, right? It's easy to start wars. It's hard to create peace. But uh, hopefully even American leaders who have dismissed the possibility altogether, but are, are probably in the wake of the uh, this uh utter failure of the of the Ukrainian counteroffensive, I think they're probably scratching their heads and saying, we can't let this go on forever. Thanks for coming on the show, Lyle. It's great to see you again. I wanted to talk a little bit about the Black Sea and the grain deal and the um, importance of the Black Sea and the ports and the blockade and the bigger picture of the Ukrainian uh, conflict. Specifically, I wanted to to you know probe a little bit about this humanitarian corridor that Ukraine just opened up last week ostensibly to let the ships that have been stuck there cargo ships that have been stuck uh on the Ukraine side since the invasion in 2022 the humanitarian corridor had been put up to start allowing those cargo ships free passage. And they, I guess one ship has, has left, hasn't been attacked by the Russians, but now I'm starting to see stories of one popped up in Reuters yesterday, suggesting that the Ukrainians might use that humanitarian uh, corridor to start moving grain ships, grain ships that are specifically blockaded by the Russians since they, you know, left the, the deal late last month uh, for their own reasons, but that blockade stands. Do you think, uh, what are your thoughts on whether or not we should be um, concerned that there might be some um, kinetic activity in the Black Sea that may or may not draw NATO or U.S., military in to protect cargo ships that might be attacked if they try to traverse the Black Sea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, um, I've got a lot, a lot to say on this, (laughs) but, uh, you know, I, I guess my initial thought is that my, um, you know, I was very worried two weeks ago watching the, uh, grain deal fall apart 
because, you know, it was the one sort of modest, very modest negotiating success. You know, we'd had some mediators. Uh, Turkey seems to have played a, a very positive role from what I could see. And that, you know, really, that was the only kind of almost negotiated success where the side seemed to be using moderation that, that you know, was helping the you know, lower, uh, especially help the poorer countries. So, so anyway, it's, it's very sad, but, but I, I initially I was very worried about escalation. I'm a little less worried now, just, uh, you know, we've seen, um, you know, some, as it were tests, I, I recall, I, I didn't read the details on this, but I know, uh, there was a Russian, uh, Navy operation against one ship, uh, using a helicopter. I haven't, I haven't really investigated the details of that. I, I mean, I do think, it's worth saying that I, I don't think Russia wanted this deal to fall apart. Um, you know, to state the obvious, uh, you know, it seems to have been a, um, uh, a clear reaction to the attack, uh, the most recent attack against the uh, Kerch Bridge, you know, which clearly Putin regards as, you know, a great symbol of, uh, you know, his uh, reign of his, of his power. So, I mean, I think the Ukrainians knew exactly what they were doing when they were sort of doing, you know, triggering, uh, uh, and, and maybe the Russian response was impulsive, but, uh, you know, I think unfortunately, uh, you know, Russia as a global power has all kinds of, uh, uh, actions it can take, uh, in retaliation for, for measures like this. And, and, you know, I, I want to just remind listeners that this war could get much, much worse in terms of, you know, in every respect. Um, and, and I'm not even talking about nuclear escalation here, but, but I mean, you know, the, if the Russians wanted to level a Ukrainian city, I'm talking about the civilian parts and the way that cities were leveled in World War II, they could certainly do that. They generally haven't done it, but they could do it. And um, we really should try to avoid um, outcomes like that. But look, the, the Black Sea situation is very dangerous. Uh, and I, I could see further escalation. I mean, I, look, I haven't seen any sign that NATO is enthusiastic to to get involved in the fight here, uh, despite what, you know, maybe some hot-headed uh, people on the flank might suggest. I mean, as a, as a kind of backdoor here, there are U.S. troops in Romania that's close by. Now, by the way, I would like to tell listeners also that this is the, uh, let's see, in October, we have the 170th anniversary of the Crimean War. Um, and uh, it's worth reflecting on... Um, Wow. It, it, please go and examine the details of that war. Um, I had about uh, almost, almost uh, well, nearly a million killed and wounded. I mean, devastating losses for uh, the Western belligerents, uh, Russia, uh, uh, Britain and France, as well as Russia, of course. And, and uh, you know, if you look at the reasons for that war, guess what? They're very similar to what we see today, uh, actually. So, um, you know, go and look at that. Uh, and uh, please, uh, I think that will help you get your head around a lot of the mistakes that are being made today. Do you think that the Ukrainians still have their sights on, on taking Crimea back? We haven't talked about that, or at least they're not talking about it as much in the mainstream media analysis of the war. Um, there seemed to be some confidence on the part of U.S. officials about six months ago that this could happen, but I'm not hearing it uh, now. Is that because the counteroffensive uh, is waning so in such a way that the Crimea, that goal of Crimea might might be lost? Well, honestly, I, I never I never thought that it was a realistic objective, not in the least. I mean, even in the 
odd circumstance that, uh, you know, the U.S. intelligence is completely wrong and they do uh, break through into Melitopol uh, or, uh, you know, get to the Sea of Azov. I've always said that that doesn't actually fundamentally threaten uh, the Russian position in Crimea. Why? Because uh, Russia owns the air, but they also own the sea. I mean, the Russian Black Sea Fleet is immensely powerful. Ukraine has has no sea power to speak of, except these uh, little annoying drones here and there. And, uh, you know, because of that, they're, they'll be able to reinforce uh, um the uh, position in Crimea as long as they want. Uh, you know, they have other many other Black Sea uh, ports. Um, and, and, and the idea that, that uh, Russia would surrender Crimea, um, it's complete fantasy and certainly would result in nuclear escalation if, if a serious attempt were made on Crimea. And please, again, read your history, uh, see the, how hard the Russians have fought for, you know, the, there is almost no bigger symbol uh, except other than maybe Stalingrad or, uh, or St. Petersburg, Leningrad. You know, there's no greater symbol of Russian sovereignty than Sevastopol and the, the two battles that were fought there, the two sieges going back to, uh, you know, 1854, right, 170 years ago, but also uh, when they fought um, the Nazis in Sevastopol and the, the garrison there fought, you know, to the bitter end. And by the way, you know, you can argue that Actually, the defenders of Sevastopol may have saved uh, the West and the world. Why? Because they pulled a lot of forces that were headed for Stalingrad. So that ultimately set up the Stalingrad battle where mm. Russia did prevail and which enabled the whole victory over Nazi Germany. So, you know, if you really want to reflect on it, I guess we should be very thankful that, that Russia fought very hard for Sevastopol in the past. And of course, they would never think of surrendering. And by the way, you know, unfortunately, this whole, uh, all the tension with Russia, you know, we could say springs from, or a lot of it from uh, the 2014-2015 episodes around the Maidan where the annexation was created. A lot of it comes back to this one city on the Black Sea that Russians feel very strongly about. And, and any attempts to uh, um, kind of separate Crimea from Russia are, are sure to bring about, you know, some kind of an immense disaster. So, yeah, I think we need to readjust, uh, all recalibrate. Honestly, I don't think that people in Kiev really think that they have a chance there. Uh, it, they've kind of used that as a bargaining tool. They say, well, you know, let's negotiate about, uh, you know, the rest of the territory and, and, you know, then they'll give up their claim to Crimea. Let me ask you one more question, because I know we're a bit out of time, but just looking at history and in the context of what countries are committed to fighting for, it does seem that the United States is heading towards a real crossroads here where the Biden administration could say, OK, counteroffensive didn't work. Ukraine's running out of ammunition, out of re recruits. Now is the time to start shifting to a diplomatic pathway. Or it could say, well, we're committed to fighting for as long as it takes. So we get the Russians out and we put Ukraine supposedly in a better position to negotiate. We're just going to keep ramping up production. We're going to keep squeezing our allies for everything they have to give. It, it, in your assessment of history, where do you think the United States might go at this point? I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm an expert in Chinese politics and, and uh, I know a lot about Russia, but I unfortunately I'm, predictions about American politics, are, that's probably beyond me. But I, 
You know, I think Americans are, um, as uh, James Carden, I think on, on one of your previous episodes, uh, outlined uh, that, that, you know, Americans are, are starting to see the light here. They're starting to realize that this has no happy ending at all. Uh, there isn't going to be a victory parade uh, either through Donetsk uh, or, or through Moscow uh, or, or Sevastopol. That none of that is going to happen. Uh, what there is is immense carnage. I mean, we, we, we have reports that uh, the level of amputees in Ukraine is, is 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 it's not similar to Afghanistan and Iraq, right? Because there we had uh, we were fighting a much weaker enemy, and we had first class facilities, and we could fly the wounded out with helicopters. So there, most people lived, and we were able to save limbs and so forth. It is not possible in Ukraine, folks. They cannot, they don't have helicopters to fly in. So those people are either dying on the battlefield or they're losing those limbs. And so the level of amputees is is, uh, is on the level of World War One. That's how bad it is. Uh, and then they're going to have a whole generation of Ukrainians and Russians, too, who are disabled. Uh, it's horrible. But, um, uh, you know, I, I think, I, I look, I'm pleased to see that many candidates running for president in our country when they're given a voice are, are many of them say the war should be stopped, you know, the sooner the better. Uh, and it's, it's a bit shocking how many candidates are, have come to that position. So, you know, that to me shows that um, Americans are kind of tiring of the slaughter, uh, not to mention the hemorrhaging of immense funds that could be put uh, to better uses. By the way, where are the funds going to come to rebuild this country that's been destroyed? Uh, probably from us too, or maybe the Europeans as well. But I mean, it, it, the resources are going to be huge. And so uh, that's what we really should be focused on. If you want to help Ukraine, let's think hard about rebuilding Ukraine. Um, that, that's where we, but, you know, look, Kelly, I guess I have a bit of faith in Americans that Americans are peace loving. Uh, look, a lot of people are getting rich off this war, including where I live. Uh, you know, we've got Raytheon in my backyard, Lockheed Martin. They're getting filthy rich off this. Uh, but most Americans realize um, this doesn't end well and, and we need to rein it in. And, and this, this is the cause of all kinds of, you know, um, economic uh, turbulence all over the world. Um, and so while some people are getting rich off this, most Americans want peace and, and will favor that and push the government in that direction. So that's I'm hopeful a little bit. I'm hopeful, too. I really am. And I'm, as always, in awe of your knowledge um, and, and bringing in the historical perspective is so important. And um, I we both acknowledge that you have this um, other, you know, uh, wealth of information to give us on China. So maybe the next time you come on, we can talk about what's going on uh, with U.S. and China relations or give us an update because uh, we love having we love having you on the show. Yeah, I hope so, Kelly. I just did a, a big uh, podcast with uh, the Seneca group uh, that does a lot of uh, China episodes. And I evaluated a Taiwan scenario in a lot of detail. So listeners might be interested in that. That uh, so, Excellent. But, but yeah, by all means, I'd love to talk with uh, you and Daniel about that at Taiwan. Unfortunately, I have to, even though I'm very sad looking at Ukraine, I still think Taiwan is the most dangerous place in the world, unfortunately. Okay. Well, until the next show, thank you so much, Lyle, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack 
at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time. <laughs>